Salabona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Marketing Manager Jim Clark. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impression of the wines. This episode, we're going to look at black-owned brands. This will actually be the first of two episodes looking at one of the most important aspects of the South African wine industry, the efforts to redress the imbalances resulting from the legacy of apartheid. Specifically, we're going to talk to some black owners of wine brands, find out how they got started, what challenges they face, and what sort of wines they're making. In this episode, we'll focus on brands owned by individuals. Next time, we'll look at companies where the workers themselves own the brand or part of the brand as a group. Our three subjects today all grew up with no real knowledge about wine. Wine has not traditionally played a big role in black culture in South Africa, and each discovered wine in their own way, as you'll see. My name is Nsikibiela. I'm the winemaker and owner of Aslina Wines. We've been now around the market since 2016, but I've been making wines since 2004 when I was previously working for Stelekaya Wines. I got recruited when I was at, in high school to study winemaking, which was something that I actually had no idea what it was. But through the recruitment, being sponsored by South African Airways, I basically started winemaking, which was for me an opportunity. So it wasn't like I woke up and I was like, oh, I've seen people making wine and I'm excited. I would like to join the industry. No, it wasn't that. It was, there's an opportunity to study and it was winemaking and I was like, you know what? I'll do it. So that's how I actually ended up in the wine industry. I always say a person who doesn't know wine, sometimes just don't go with the people who are passionate about wine with what they say. Because I remember... Jablano was talking about, oh, this wine, how beautiful the berries and all the characters and everything. And while I was busy, excited about that, you're thinking, oh, this is going to be so nice. This is going to be divine and da, 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 da. And then you take a sip and you're thinking, damn, this is horrible. While he was talking, I could taste, because anything when somebody says fruits, I could taste the fruits. I could taste the excitement. I was all excited about this thing. And then boom. You taste the thing and you're like, hey, what was all this thing that this guy was talking about? Because it was horrible. And I remember I thought to myself, is this what I'm going to be making? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I started working as a student at Delheim. So we'll taste wines and we got trained how we present wines, different wines. So we started getting taught all these different things about wines. And we'll taste and yeah, I can drink this, I can drink this. Until one day... It was a Shiraz 99. I remember I took a sip and I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, this is my wine. It was one of those, this is my wine. And yeah. And basically that's when I started really enjoying wine. Okay. One of the things that was this pongy, pungent smell on the Shiraz that for me, it reminded me of, I grew up looking after cows, after growing in the fields and all that. So that, it remind that earthiness, that, like, manure character. It's like, I was milking cows, I was always in the crawl. So, this was it. This was the wine. I had a personal association with the wine. So I, I think this is one of the things I always say when people taste wine and they're like, but people are talking about this. And I was like, you know what? You're only going to associate with something you know. I remember when I was at Stelikaya, 
They used to talk about truffles. Oh, this one, you're picking up truffles. And, and I'll be thinking, what are they talking about? And now, now you're shaking your head, agreeing, but you don't know what you're agreeing with. And I remember when we went to Aubergine, and I asked Harold, the chef, I was like, can you please help me? Because everybody speak about truffle. I only think of chocolate. And he, we went to the kitchen. He gave me the truffle oil. He gave me the truffles. I remember smelling the truffle itself. And I'm like, this smells like a masi or ukamba that carries sour milk. That carries a masi. Because for me, a masi igula is something that I know from growing up. Natsiki came from the Eastern Cape, quite a distance from the winelands, which are in the Western Cape closer to Cape Town. But even someone relatively close to the vineyards can grow up with little knowledge of wine and how it's made. My name is Berwin Souls. I'm the owner of Tesla Style Wines in the Yemlin Arda Valley. So I am originally from Teselasdal, which is a small village 23 kilometers northeast from the Yemlin Arda Valley. Our knowledge of wine was basically zero. When I grew up, the people drank what they called moss, which I believe was the least maybe of wine that was, I think it was like the bad bit of the wine. They drank that and that is what they got off the farms or they were paid with wine, uh, which we called the Dobstelsel back then. It's where you got paid with wine, not money, but more abusive, if I can put it at that. So there was a lot of alcohol abuse. And then also they brewed their own stuff. My grandmother used to make a brew that she called Skufan, but they made it with everything that could ferment, like pieces of bread and wheat, yeast, Blocks, lukewarm water. No one really paid more than 10 and for an alcoholic beverage. It was home brews and it was beer mainly. And then this wine that they called moss. Oh, and umtas. Umtas was the other wine that was fairly drunk in Tesla. I started working at Hamilton Russell Vineyards in February 2001 as an au pair to Anthony Hamilton Russell's children. And soon I moved into the wine administration and certification together with the winemakers and the viticulturists on Hamilton Russell Vineyards. I really wanted to know why people pay so much for wine. So Anthony suggested that I ask the winemaker and viticulturist if I can assist them and see the process of harvest to get an idea of where wine comes from and learn the process. I was too late for harvest then, but I quickly moved to logistics. I also assisted in the tasting room with sales and admin, and I also assisted on the wine shows. So I started to learn more about wine, and the following year, I started to assist with the harvest, just physical assistance. I've been doing logistics ever since then and assisting with the harvest. And in 2014, Anthony Hamilton Russell said, look, you've got no more place to grow. Why don't you make a barrel of wine in our cellar together with our winemaker, Emil Ross? But you have to get your own grapes, get your own company registered. You can use a building on the farm to get your liquor license registered, and we will support you with the startup costs for your business. And that is how Tesla's Dahl was born. I got a great contract with Laviage Babylon Vineyards, which is in the Yemelin Arda Rich in the Walker Bay region of South Africa. And the first pressing of Tesla's Dal Pinot Noir 
was in February 2015. That was the maiden vintage. So I started selling that basically in 2016. And now, five vintages later, of the Pinot Noir, I added Chardonnay to production and recently bought properties. So now I will be planting my own vineyards as well. One-third of South Africa's population lives in rural areas where farming is the major activity. Sometimes it's just subsistence farming, and agriculture is usually not seen as a way to improve one's standard of living. Every single one of my community members still thinks badly of agriculture. They still think it's a low-paying job, just digging holes, basically, and, and getting stuff off the ground. And that picture needs to change. I went to a public school where there were only coloreds on that school that was in Caledon. There weren't career days or nothing like that, but we were indoctrinated with this thought of if you finish school or whatever, you must become either something in a uniform, and that is policeman, army, defense force, fire officer, uh, traffic officer, yeah, or teacher. That was seen as the jobs. That's it. There's nothing beyond that. That is the job. They actually said, don't become, in Afrikaans it would be plaaswerker. In English, it's don't become a, a farm laborer. Stay away from agriculture. Everyone is poor coming from there and, 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 and stuff like that. So never was there a focus on careers in agriculture or viticulture or horticulture or anything like that. And I think up to today, that's still the case. My family one day didn't actually understand what I was studying. And I remember, I think... The community, because I was sponsored by South African Airways, they thought I was starting to be a pilot. But there was this one grandfather in the village who once called me, and he was really concerned. Because when he found out what I was studying, and also because it was saying I'm studying agriculture, and he was concerned. It is like, my child, that's what we do at home. This is the way we live. Why would you waste time and go study something that we're doing at home anyways? Better study something else. So it was more like secretarial work he was talking about. But he was speaking from a place of love because it was a place of concern that we, we're growing up plowing maize meal, doing all those. We grew up farming. So now you, it's like you grew up farming and then now you decide you're going to go study farming. What's that? But it was like yes, the few people actually who were studying agriculture. Seriously. But other than that, and my mom, her concern was more like, oh my word, my child is going to be an alcoholic. Until she realized actually that no. A few years down the line, I'm still as sober. Whatever we call sober, but yes. <laughs> so when we arrived in Stellenbosch, we as students were staying at Jablani Changas' house in Mamsbury. So it will drive us to campus. I think for me, when you're picturing the villages and looking at the village where I come from and such a small village and only we most, we all Zulu people. Because so much so that if there was a, a different tribe in the village, everybody's going to know about that. <laughs> so <laughs> there's going to be a war around it. So let alone being among white people. When I go to Stellenbosch, for me, it was a culture shock. And also being among white people, everything was different. Everything was different for me. One of those differences was the language. 
South Africa has 11 officially recognized languages. At Stellenbosch University, instruction has traditionally been in Afrikaans. Growing up in the Eastern Cape, Nitsiki learned English and Isizulu, the most spoken language in South Africa, but not Afrikaans. Learning about winemaking in a new language was a struggle, to say the least. So I went to counseling and I explained my situation and I was like, I think I'm going to fail and I cannot go back home. So you guys have to help me out. And initially they were like, but there's nothing we can do. And I was like, I don't know if there's nothing we can do, but I'm going to fail and I cannot go back home. That's all I know. And they're like, okay, fine. You're going to attend your counseling session all the time so that if you happen to fail, then we will actually write a letter to the university. They won't kick you out. So I think with that back up, in my mind, I was like, okay, I'm settled now. I can focus on my studies and try and pedal this whole system and understand what's going on here. And thank goodness I passed. Actually, I passed my first year, which was great. But it did not eliminate the struggle of studying. The struggle of studying was hard because you should try and convert from Africans to English, from English to Zulu. So, yeah. I think one of the issues as human beings, we've got expectations one of the things which used to frustrate me a lot was to expect that students were going to be understanding, but they were not. It's like when the lecturer tried to swap and speak English in class, they'll make noise. And they'll be questioned, Why are you, what are you doing in Afghan University if you don't understand? And funny enough, towards our final year, they were so understanding, we became one. I think it was more, if you were to look at a situation to say, when there's something different in your environment, you become, I don't know, you it's fear and all the other stuff that comes with it. And you try to defend something that you really shouldn't be defending. Because as the time went on, we all became friends. So much so it was sad when we were to part ways. It was actually sad when we were to part ways because we like, it's so nice now we want to stay together as classmates. And so, <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was madness, but it was shame. It was great. Tinashe Nyamudoka came from even further away, Zimbabwe. He also discovered wine through a different avenue than either Nitsiki or Barin. He started working in restaurants. My name is Tinashe Nyamudoka, so I founded Kumusha Wines in 2017. I came to South Africa, Cape Town, in 2008. Everything was going bad in Zimbabwe, so came here... For greener pastures, I knew wine. I tasted wine, but it wasn't part of the drinking culture anymore. And when I was in Zimbabwe, I was working for a supermarket, being in management. So ideally, when you're an immigrant, you kind of look for where you're familiar with. And I went to look for work in a supermarket. I didn't have the position I wanted, so I ended up being a baker at a local spa. I worked there for almost four months. But I knew it wasn't the place I wanted to be. But back then, I was looking for ways to make more money. And I realized in restaurants, the guys were coming back with what I was earning a week. They were making in a day. So it was pretty much easy for me to find out where the money was. So I was fortunate enough, I got employed at this new restaurant opening in Kemp's Bay called the Roundhouse Restaurant. And yeah, they took me without any experience and I was fortunate that they were running a, a good hospitality program called Let's Sell Lobster back then. So they were just employing disadvantaged people from different backgrounds and people who've never been in the hospitality. So we, we were the guinea pigs of that program. I just took a keen interest. And I think initially 
probably that's where I started to, to get really introduced into wine and starting appreciating it because it, it was a fine dining place and, you know, we had great wine. So from then on, I was just introduced to the good wines. So I, I never started from the sweet, you know, Robertson. I just started with the good wines. <laughs> that's all I knew. And basically when I started, it was a means to to earn more money in the list. I realized if you're working as a waiter, if you sell more wines on the table, the higher the check, the more the tip. So for me, it was basically trying to school myself into selling more wines. And within that's where I just got hooked. Personally, I started to enjoying it as well. With wine, the more you understand, the more interesting it becomes and the more you want to learn it. Eventually... I worked there for some time and, and remember I'd come as a junior, so I was the least person in the restaurant and you have to work your way up to be working in restaurants and uh, I just wanted more uh, and I couldn't get there. So luckily the one and only hotel was opening up and through mutual friends, uh, I went for an interview and, and then that's where I think the world of wine really opened. It was prestigious hotel by then. And you're getting this important guest and the wine cellar itself was a 6,003 of, of wine. So it was just intriguing. We had a strong team of sommeliers and I came as a wine waiter. But then on, I, I just had this aspiration of, okay, so there is a progression in this profession. So I think that's where I realized I, I wanted to be that. And that point as well, that's when Song, the documentary came through. So, so I was watching this documentary and I was like, geez, okay, this is interesting. So there's this cool profession. And I just said, one day I just want to be a master sommelier and I stuck into it. Luckily, Andre Becker became a good confidant. He told me to enroll with the Cape Wine Academy. He was teaching me as well. So I think one and only gave me that lovely foundation. I worked with Gordon Ramsay for a year. Then Rubens came through. In those years, I was getting certifications, Cape Wine Academy, WSET. At the hotel, there was a head sommelier already, so that position was far from me. But they moved me to Noble Restaurant, where I worked for two years, uh, running the whole beverage program. Luke Del Robas used to come in there, and a whole lot of local chefs and celebrities. And in the year 2013, there was a competition called Cape Legends Inter Hotel Challenge. So I was the inaugural winner for 2013 Best Wine Steward. So it put me on the spotlight and the ones to watch in 2014. Then Oyster Box Hotel came through with a nice offer. So I had to go to Natal as head sommelier. Uh, I spent a year and in, in the second half of the second year, there was an opening position at the test kitchen. And I had mutual friends also who linked me up with Luke Dale Roberts and said, you know, I know you from your time at Nobu. We're almost running similar style. If you're interested, come over. And yeah, it, it was tough decision to make there because I'd just been a year and a half with Oyster Box and, you know, I was leaving the offering more money. But for me, it was just a conscious decision. I couldn't turn down the best restaurant in Africa. And by then, on the world's 50 best test kitchen was what, 28th. So yeah, I took the challenge, joined the test kitchen in 2015 as beverage manager and head sommelier. Probably the best five years I've ever had in my working life was at the test kitchen. Luke Del Roberts is just an amazing chef. 
In my next year, the test kitchen, my beverage program was awarded Best Wine Service Award in the local Eat Out. It didn't happen in the five years the test kitchen was operating. So it was an achievement. And during that time, it was palpable. The energy was there. I was mostly in the kitchen and we're doing lovely wine pairings. And it was amazing. Intriguingly, Tanache is not the only Zimbabwean sommelier to make a mark in South Africa. The thing with the Zimbabweans is we just take opportunities. And it has to do with, in Zim and mostly other societies, like, you know, the schooling was that you become a doctor, you know, scientist, and we, we never grew up with these professions. And once one of you guys starts to master it and, and learns it, <laughs> you gravitate towards it. But I think as a people, we just generally curious and want to take opportunities and we're hospitable. That's why most of us ended up in the hospitality industry. When it comes to tasting, I think it's just a good memory of association. It's one discussion I've had with my other team members because we ended up having our own team competing at the World Blind Tasting Championships in France for two years. And I think the last time we went there, we were like 14 out of 24. I don't know if it's inherent. I just think it's that association we made with our own reference and just good memory, I think. But why Cape Town ended up with Zimbabwean sommeliers, I think it's just opportunities we just sensed. And we study, we read, we're not trying to read and, and get these certificates. It comes to a point where, you know, even Luke is asking, we really love you here, but the challenge is keeping you happy here. So what can we do? So during that time also, you know, I'd advanced in my wine qualifications. I'd finished my diploma with the Cape Wine Academy. I was doing my WCT level three and I was, I was more involved in wine judging now. Uh, so I was judging for wine on platter. I was judging for the trophy wine show with microfusion. I went to get my wine judging certificate with microfusion in 2016. And I always had this business incline. And I realized UCT was running a wine business school. So I enrolled again, did a wine certificate there. So it gave me the whole layout of the wine value chain. And one of the challenges or one of the assignments was you have to create a beverage program in the restaurant you're working for as part of the assignment. So I approached Luke and said, this is what I want to do. I want to create an in-house brand for the restaurant group, it was like, I like the idea, but I think it would be more beneficial if you made it your own, you know, or if you come up with your own. And, you know, it was just that light switch you needed. I'd been thinking about it, but I didn't know if he was going to allow me to do it. So the Kumusha idea was there in a previous way, but in a different package. But when he mentioned it, I realized, okay, I've been judging wine. So I know wine quality. I've been selling wine in a restaurant. I know what the consumer wants. I, I know what food goes with wine. I went to business school. I know how to make a business proposal. And I just need to get the wine and get the brand. Natsiki's route was more traditional. After completing her formal winemaking education, it was time to go find a job. I've been working at Delham throughout my study years. Um, I applied again at Delham to check if there was anything that they have available for me to do. Because I knew they had a winemaker, they had an assistant, they had a viticulturist. So I was, okay, just as a backup, 
to have if there is something that I can do if I can't get the job outside. And I sent applications to different wineries. There is one winery I applied for a job. They wanted a viticulturist. And I applied for the position. And I got a call that they said they want a guy. I remember I cried. I was angry. I got angry. Like It's time now that people are saying, okay, we need to open spaces for women. And you're telling me you're looking for a guy? And two, I knew it's illegal to say that. So that was the reason of it. They didn't want to put it on paper. But I was angry about it, and I cried. And one thing I realized later, I was like, I'm glad they didn't take me because getting a job at Stelekaya was, Stelika was the best place for me because it was more like looking at it like two kids growing together. Because Stelika was also young at that time when I joined. In 2011, I got approached by Mika Bulmash from Wine for the World. And she told me that she was thinking of doing this project, have winemaker collaborate for the wines to for the U.S. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm interested. It's so funny that I even still remember what she was wearing that day when she came to visit me at Stelica. <laughs> um, yeah, so we had a conversation, and basically from then, the following year, or a year after that, Helen came with Mika because we had to do a blend, our very first collaboration. So they came together and we did the blend and Mika imported the wine to sell in the U.S. And then we did the second one, which was a 2013 vintage. The money that came from that actually is what I used to actually start Aslina. And I remember when I said to Mika, oh, Mika, I've started my own brand. And she was excited about it. Until one day when it was 2015, I'm like, Mika, I've resigned. And she panicked. <laughs> she was like, I'm thinking that we haven't built the brand yet. We can't, we won't, we, whatever we can sell, you're not even going to be able to live on it. And I was like, we just, we're going to try and make it work. And she was like, okay, fine. Let, let's show, okay, fine. Let's do it. Let's think. I was like, okay. <laughs> and she said, okay, I'm going to buy some of those wines. We're going to bring them here. You're going to be prepared. We're going to walk the streets. And I said, whatever you say, I'm there. I flew to the U.S., Branwa, Texas importer. Also bought. And so I was like to Branwa, if you can just buy enough that I can get a flight to the U.S. and pay up that upfront. And then when I arrived in New York, I stayed with Mika. And literally, we will wake up in the morning. I knew, I remember, we'll leave at 9, be on the streets. We sold the wine. And she said, okay, we're going to need more. Now we're working. But still, this is not enough to even get you to have proper food. <laughs> she was... <laughs> So you're not even going to be able to live on this what we're going to be selling because it's not going to be enough to make you earn a living. And I was like, you know what? Unless we do it, you're just not going to know. Yeah. And we walk the streets. We walk the streets with Mika. So, yeah. That's how actually Aslina grew in the U.S. And she started approaching different distributors. And, yeah. And the support really I got from the U.S. community has been amazing. Unlike Natsiki and Barine, Tanache had little hands-on experience in the wine cellar. His training was as a sommelier, after all. 
but he did have a well-developed palate. So when it came time to make his own brand, he knew what winemakers might be a good match for his plans. Archie from Upstall Wines came to mind because one of the first wines I was so intrigued with when I started at the test kitchen was the Carl Everson. So when I tasted it, I literally had to drive to his farm unannounced and just be there because I just wanted to see what it's all about. And I knew he was doing some other project with Ewan McKenzie, who was a sommelier before. So I kind of went through blindly and asked if he could help me. I'll help you. All you just need to do is get your name in and I'll take you through the process. I've got the wines, I've got the juice we can taste through. That was then that I knew I could get the juice, but I didn't have the name. So at that time, I remember now I was reading Jonathan Nozietti's book, Liquid Memory. Uh, and, and there's a part he was, he was talking about, you know, wine of origin, like, Wine of origin is where the wine is being grown, the climate, the people, the culture. But if you've never been there, wine of origin can be where the wine is taking. You taste the wine, it takes you back to a memory, remember. And it was so resonating because when I was doing my studies of smelling wine, I struggled with European terms like blackberries, blackcurrants. I've never seen a blackcurrant or tasted a blackcurrant before, but Interesting is I used to associate wine flavors and terminology with what I grew up eating back in rural Zimbabwe, my grandfather homestead. And so what I, what I used to do when I was studying is I, I made my own vocabulary of what I understood. So I knew if I could pick up this cow down from my grandfather's crow, no, this is a, a verb. So in my blind tasting exam, I would say, okay, this is a verb. So in the European terms, they say it must be earthy or black currants or red currants. And interestingly, I'll, I'll get it. So in, in all my tasting exams, I've been top class. So for me, when I read that book and realized, no, wine was taking me home, the name just stuck. With, okay, what's home? In my Shona name, it's Kumusha. So Kumusha in Shona is like your home, your origins or your roots. So it, it just tied up together where, you know, wine is all about roots, it's all about culture, it's all about origins, it's all about memory. Then, yeah, that's how I came up with the brand Kumusha and started with 1,200 bottles. And now I think we're producing in excess of 18, 20,000 bottles in the space of three years. When it comes to wine, I'm more intrigued with the blending and tasting and the marketing and branding more than the actual winemaking and viticulture. Even in my studies, I hated viticulture and vinification. I understand it, but I'm not intrigued by what soil, what he strained, you know, that kind of thing. And I think it's one thing that the whole wine profession has to understand that not everyone enjoys the whole process from vineyard to bottling. So for me, I was like, I got this opportunity I could go and harvest wines with Ati and learn the viniculture, but it's, it's deep down it's not what I'm strong at and what I'm good at. But I came to realize that I've got a good wine palette because I've been running a good wine program. I'm judging wine. Uh, I'm competing in wine. And I, I love building blocks. I love blending. So what I do, Ati grows the vineyard. When it's time, I taste through the barrels and conceptualize the end blend I want and the style I want, then I just blend. I tell them I need 50% this, 30% this. 
5% these 10 bottles for me. I respect winemaking at all, and, and I think winemaking is, is wine farming. Those guys are farmers at heart, so I can't be saying, okay, it's harvest time, I'm going there just to pick up grapes. And maybe now that I'm not so attached with work on the restaurant floor, I can then immerse myself in the whole process. But it's not rushed or it's not showing or it's not trying to authenticate something I'm not doing. But I think with time, as I've got much more free time, I'll spend much more time in the vineyards. Barine has more connections to the land and still lives where she grew up. While for now she buys grapes from a farm in the Hemlinata Ridge, she's made planting her own vineyards a priority. The area is a very dry area, about 500 millimeters of rainfall per year. But it's got hills and the Klein River Mountain also runs there. And the soils was good to produce vegetables and stuff. I'm going to start now a vineyard there. And then also on the property opposite me, they are also beginning to start and develop vineyards. This morning I had my funding meeting with VinPro and the Department of Agriculture Western Cape because I applied for funding for some of the development on that property. It's bare land, so it's 16 hectares of bare lands. I want to plant two hectares, and I want the vines in the ground next year. I want it in the ground by 2021, but there's a lot of stuff that I need to do and apply for and get regulations for, like before it goes into the property. So now all of that regulational applications and stuff, it's very time-consuming, and it's a lot that I need to be there on the property, like for the borehole test and for meeting the water specialist because the water was the main thing. And actually today I met the soil mapping and rigging guys. It's a lot of small things, but hey, I'm telling you, I think there's very much potential. I think what the soil analysis will give me what rootstock I need to use. And then I think the Pinot Noir from that area, for me to know the quality of the grapes, I'll only see that after the third year of the vines. I would know what quality and then I would know what character Pinot Noir will come from there because currently as the Yemlin Ada rich Pinot Noir that I produce is a clean, pristine fruit. It's got very nice fruit, a very lighter style of Pinot Noir, but beautiful fruit, a nice light color and also in clay soils. So it's got structure. Tesla's style is also clay soils. I would just need to know what type of absorption, what's happening there on the analysis. That would give us an indication of what wine we can expect because we will harvest from the third year because from the third year of wine, you can make wine, but we won't really use that. That's just to see. And then on the seventh year, it will be a full harvest for Tessazal and then the wine of origin, obviously, what it is going to be because we are currently working on that as well. In the meantime, I'm going to keep or just annually renew my grape contract with the Yemlin Arder Rich. I'm just going to renew it. I don't really want two different wine of origins in the market. If I move to the grape solely from my property, then I move to the grape solely from my property. And whatever yield I get is the yield that I get because now after a year, I'm going to plant now only one hectare Pinot Noir, one hectare Chardonnay. And I'm actually not sure what the yield will be. So after the three years and we know, okay, no, this is good quality grapes coming from this a bit warmer area, I will start the design on the further eight hectares. Because ultimately my aim 
I'm going to build a 30-ton cellar, max. So the aim is to get 15 tons of Chardonnay, 15 tons of Pinot, and that's it. Tesselar's though has got a unique history. It's where Johannes Tesselar left his property to his then freed slaves in 1810. I'm a descendant of those slaves, and my parents and family still lives there. Everyone just made basically a poor farm living there with livestock and vegetables. I grew up with people still carting with donkey carts and just hard working, poor living type of farm village type of feel there. So I know that there's a big need in my community. Even with my peers, they are all still there. Very few of us got out and got to work outside of Tesla's doll itself. So I really want to aim at the youth. There's currently a lot of unemployment, a lot of theft, a lot of very negative things. And I aspire to change that. I was given an opportunity, a very unique opportunity. And I would like to, in my way, when I'm in a position to do the same to someone in Tesla style. I want to give them an opportunity and I want everyone to recognize and be informed of the educations that is out there. I I never knew, actually, that there is careers. Can you believe it? <laughs> I never knew that there's, there is careers in wine. I actually didn't know. It never occurred that some factory is making this or someone is making this or whatnot. My first meeting with wine <laughs> uh, was here at Hamilton Russell Vineyards when I came to look after the kids. And I saw that they hosted dinner parties and people came, journalists came to write about the wine. And I didn't understand any of it. I really didn't understand any of it. And most communities that I know, most colored communities don't know about this. Even in school, we weren't taught there weren't career days or career stuff that would shove you into agriculture or shove you into viticulture or stuff like that. It was never touched on. I think that is why, actually, there is so handful of black or colored wineries. I think it's because of that. We didn't know. We never knew. We need to create, again, a hardworking, ambitious community. And the only way I can do that is by giving back to that community with employment, with scholarships, with the necessary education especially on the young girls there and especially on the young boys because they are the future men and the future women. So that is definitely main goal number one. I actually can't wait to set up and have my property done and developed to get this thing going. Starting a wine brand or planting a vineyard is very capital intensive, but fortunately there are government and industry programs to help black-owned brands get on their feet. From 2016, for my second harvest, I applied to the Department of Agriculture for funding because there is funding available for black farmers. And so I applied for the funding for equipment and also for grape purchases and whatnot. And I got that funding. I also applied to Sawitu uh, slash Vinpro. So everyone really assisted. From that point in the business, Sawitu paid for the grapes that year, and also the Department of Agriculture paid for the equipment. So they paid my barrels, and they paid my bins, and they paid the pallets, and they paid the amphorae pots. 
so they made it possible for me to save up my money. And what happened was I entered for all of their competitions. So every year the Department of Agriculture hosts a female entrepreneurial competition where you can win monies for your business. And with all the assistance of the packaging that the Department of Agriculture together with Winpro and Sawitu, Sawitu is the South African Wine Transformation Unit. Together with their assistance, I was in a position, although a risky position, to purchase this property cash because I couldn't get a loan because the property values in Tessazal wasn't that great and I didn't have any assets except my car, which still belongs to the bank. And my business only had the barrels and the amphorae pots. So we couldn't even get close to that loan. And I made a decision to take all that money um, that I saved together with my profits, and I went and bought that property cash. And that was really made possible with the assistance of all these bodies, the Department of Agriculture, Western Cape, and Provincial, uh, Vinpro, definitely, and South African Wine Trade Transformation Unit, Wendy Peterson. She assists a lot. So there is uh, opportunities out there, and there is bodies appointed to assist black farmers or black wine producers. I wouldn't have been in a position where I am now if it wasn't for Anthony Hamilton Russell and Hamilton Russell Vignettes, if it really wasn't for the Department of Agriculture and for Vinpro and for Sawitu. Sometimes, however, the amount of bureaucracy can be a hindrance. Okay, this is where the complications come in. Sometimes I feel in the government there has to be someone in there who is directly dived in the industry who's going to be in the government understanding the whole complexities of the industry. Because I think that's the reason there's this gap that really the misunderstanding or miss whatever that is, that makes things don't move forward as the way sometimes we would like them to. For example, I'll say when you look at the applications that you can do to get government funding, if it was not for VINPRO, the transformation unit of VINPRO, I wouldn't be getting funded. Because whatever the government wants is what I don't have. <laughs> That's the thing. Whatever they want on their application and application forms and all those, it's what I don't have. But the reason for that is because they don't understand the industry. It does not make sense for why. So people like me, then they get sidelined, then they don't get assistance because I can tell you I've applied three times at the DTI just applying to get I remember my funding was based one of them was based on traveling to the US for my marketing the US has got a three tier system you say okay this is where I'm going to be visiting these are the letters from my importers no but when I hear they get the letter from the restaurant I'm like that's a third party at the bottom. I don't deal with them. My dealings end with the importer. At the most, there will be a distributor involved, but it ends here. And because of that, you end up like things just go. And then I'm an entrepreneur. I don't have time for back and forth things that I don't see where they're going. 
and then it goes back and forth and then I just go, you know what? Forget it. So those are the things that I feel currently the government, they understand the agricultural sector probably, but the wine industry specifically, there's a gap. The short answer to how much has changed since the end of apartheid is not enough. Efforts by individuals have often been more dynamic than government-run programs, and that's ever more true as people like Natsiki, Tanache, and Barin succeed and put their energy into making the road easier for those who follow them. That can be at the production level, as Barin is doing with her new vineyards in Teslersdal, or in other aspects of the wine trade. I think the only thing that's different currently is that I see there's more people who are interested in, in getting into the industry. But I don't think the difficulty of getting into the industry has become easier than our times. It is easier, but not as easier as I would have expected it to be. Again, expectations. Those are things that disappoint us because we expect and then, so sometimes we have to go with the flow. But anyways, it hasn't changed as fast as I have imagined. But again, it is still happening. The process is still going on, which is great. It's not like it's standing still. I'm involved with the Pinotash Youth Development Academy. I'm one of the directors on the board, and we're training young people through the value chain of the wine industry. And we've been celebrating that since we started in 2012, each and every year, we were seeing growth and we're seeing meaningful change within the industry, with the students getting jobs and changing their family and assisting their families and all those things. I can say, especially with this ban of alcohol, and for the industry not operating, the hospitality not operating, most of the work that we've done of our students who've got jobs in the industry, some of them lost their jobs. And all of a sudden, we're twinkling our thumbs and we're not sure what's going to happen. But that's what basically currently we are doing. So we're still hopeful because one of the things I know, the wine industry doesn't give up that easy. We don't give up. So we're going to keep pushing. We're going to make it work. I want to use it as a vehicle of real transformation. I wanted to make a blueprint in this part of the world, especially in the wine industry. They're talking about transformation. But if you really look clearly into it, it's mostly centered around the farm workers and the vineyards and land ownership. Whereas with Kumusha, immensing myself through it, I've realized you can transform that part of the industry. But if you haven't transformed the distribution, the retail, the marketing and branding, it's not going to help anyone. And I've found out it's not transformed. Beyond the vineyard, everywhere, there's no representation there. So for me, I want, I'm, I'm living through the journey I'm learning, but I want it also to be an example of, you know, the young guys coming through, brand owners, and leave a blueprint. So for me, at the bottom of it, that's what I truly want to believe. But for it to be a success or for it to make sense, the Kumusha brand has to grow. It has to be, it has to have a commercial and financial meaning. So I think my challenge is that in the next five years, I want to be selling one million bottles of wine in Africa. I think it's possible. And now with the U.S. market opening very nicely, Zimbabwean open market working out very nicely and I'm working on my own digital learning platform where all that I've learned I've almost packaged it and everyone willing to wanting to know they can easily get it so it's not like me when I was starting 
I had to find out how do I bottle, how do I get the licensing, how do I get into distribution, what the labeling means. So I think all those, it's, it's, it's well documented and hopefully I can use it to help other guys coming through. I think for me, transformation mustn't be centered in, in one area. I am aware of the efforts that have been done, very good efforts have been done, to say the least. But I just feel there has to be representation in the whole value chain of wine. There has to be representation so that it doesn't stagnate. I didn't grow up with wine on the dinner table. Uh, it's something that I had to adopt and learn into it, of which I feel us who wants to be transformed tend to take this new culture like it was. But I think we've also still got to learn about the wine culture and the industry and the, and the gatekeepers have to understand that they have to also teach us to be included. And for me, again, what is really important in the whole transformation and the wines as well, you look at the way wine is being marketed and, and, and branded. It's not a reflection of my culture. It's not a reflection of my drinking culture. Uh, if you can go on social sites or marketing material of all these wineries, you've never seen an, an authentic African feel. Whereas with my Kumusha wine, the market I, I was targeting, which is predominantly black, is, is embracing it because they're seeing me cooking the food they used to, the environment they used to. So it's easy to pick that this wineries marketing department is run by a different culture. <laughs> As usual, we wanted to get a U.S. perspective on these wines. And in this case, I turned to a sommelier at large, Marquita Levy, who I've had the fortune to know for almost 15 years now. And Marquita wears a lot of different hats in the industry. And in the context of South African wines, we actually both got our first real immersion in South Africa together back at Cape Wine 2006. What impression did that trip make on you back then? That trip actually turned my path of wine, because it was such an amazing thing for me to be a part of a team of about 45 to 48 Americans coming to this huge wine convention in South Africa. And the amount of hospitality, the amount of grandeur, and the amount of importance, and the wines themselves. Mm -hmm. I had previously tasted wines and had them on the list at Indochine and at Aldila Wine Bar. But to taste them and actually see where they're grown, see where they're made, feel the history and feel the hospitality of South Africa, that just completely hypnotized me. And I fell in love with South African wine. And one of the wonderful things that happened to me when I was there was until I actually spoke English, a lot of people thought I was South African. So when I got off the plane, one of the first things Someone who was in working in the airport said to me, he was like, welcome home. And it, it kept happening. People were like, welcome home. Or they were surprised that I was American. And I really felt the African-American in the African-American title. And wow. I felt that became something really important to me. Don't make me cry, Jim. Don't make okay, me cry. Okay, okay, okay. Let's, let's, talk, let's talk wine. Uh, on that trip, did you seek out and did you discover any black-owned brands back then? I had known about Seven Sisters, and then when we attended a rising winemakers panel, I saw Nsiki Biele on the panel 
for Stella Kaya. Right. And so when the tasting came along, I immediately went to her table, which was basically flocked and one of the most popular tables. And it was hard for me to get in to taste all of those beautiful Cabernet Sauvignons. But that was my first experience. And it wasn't necessarily that there were a lot of Black-owned wineries. There were quite a few people either working in vineyard management or working at wineries. But in my experience, literally, there was only one that I saw that was Black-owned. And I think now we can even see, for one, now Natsiki has her own brand. So that, that's even she has exactly. moved into a place where she's not working for, for someone else, but has her own Black-owned brand. You had the Chardonnay there, right? Yes. I think it's particularly interesting to taste the Chardonnay. For a long time, Natsiki only made red wines at Stella Kaya. Mm-hmm. But how did this wine come across? It's interesting because I've had both the Sauvignon Blanc and the Chardonnay. And just a shout out to Maria Roost at some time. She poured this by the glass. And so when I was working there, I was pouring this wine by the glass. And I was able to talk from personal experience about meeting the winemaker. One thing that I love about this particular Chardonnay is that this shows the potential of South African Chardonnay moving from a marketing and branding aspect of we are similar to Burgundy, we are similar to Napa, we are similar to New Zealand, and actually establishing their own kind of identity in terms of Burgundian grapes. And so while this does remind me of a beautiful, warm vintage of Chablis because of its bright, beautiful acidity, I think that's more of an aspect of the soil types that she's sourcing the grapes from in Stellenbosch and Elgin. These beautiful soils bring in high acid wines. You have the maritime climate from the Atlantic and from Walker Bay, depending on where you're from. And so you get this really pretty new identity. I was very pleasantly surprised by how very focused and vibrant it was. I don't drink a lot of Chardonnay, actually, but I could crush this bottle very easily. <laughs> All right. Now, I think the next wine we sent you actually has a story that you can really identify with because it traces a career path that parallels your own. And this is the Kamusha from Tanashi and Yamadoka. The blend is the brilliance of South Africa. It's like 48% Roussan. It's 35% Chenin Blanc, which is one of my favorite white grapes in the entire world. It's 13% Colombar and 4% Semillon. The wines are made by Ati at Obstal Estate. And then he goes in, he tastes from barrels, he makes his blend and then he gives it to Ati to continue with the élevage. So he is picking these wines with hospitality in mind, with food in mind, with wine and food pairings. He, he doesn't say that he's a winemaker, but I think he's a sommelier winemaker in that you make wines that people are going to love with food and are going to love to celebrate with food. He said an important thing that I thought was really cool. He talked about the fact that in his job, he tastes wine. And he only has mm-hmm. one day, his Sunday off, where he drinks wine. <laughs> and that's the day when he is with friends. He likes to cook himself. And so he wanted to make wines in the vein of 
this is what I would drink on Sunday with my friends. And this wine is absolutely that. So we did send one red wine, and that's Pinot Noir. How is the uh, Tesla's doll showing? This wine, final conclusion, brilliant Pinot Noir. I am literally so proud of this South African Pinot Noir that I'm going to slip it into the blind tasting on Sunday at Red Hook and basically make everybody just start crying. <laughs> um, it is so, the fruit is so pure. It is so bridally correct. It is pristine. The fruit flavor is amazing. It has these wonderful underbrush notes, sour cherry. It's tart. It's lovely. It is really fantastic. This is the jam. And also, I think another thing that's important, because I think this happens in all wine communities, but I think the spotlight is on South Africa because it is an African country, in that now you can hold these three wines up and say, we have these three talented African winemakers who are really paving the foundation and the iconic status that's going to make it a pathway to success in South Africa, where you can say, you know what I want to do? I want to be a winemaker. And that's not going to be something that's out of the ordinary. It could be a real career path. That's a problem that we have here in the United States. Actually, the entire wine community has that kind of same issue. But it's very important to have those first people to show you how to do it. Aslina and Tesla's Dolls wines have been in the U.S. market for a couple years now, and Kamusha arrived just a couple months ago. We didn't have time to talk about the wines themselves very much, but I hope you'll seek them out and try them. They're well worth it. Aslina's lineup includes a Cabernet, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, and a Bordeaux-style blend. Kamusha also makes a pair of Sauvignon Blancs and a Cabernet, as well as a couple wines that show off the creative blending typical of some of South Africa's leading boutique wine producers. Tesla's Dahl in keeping with its connection to the Hemelinarda Valley, is all about Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. You'll find links to their websites and those of the U.S. importers on our website, wosa.us. Also, that Zimbabwean sommelier team that competed in the World Wine Tasting Championships? There's a documentary called Blind Ambition about their journey due out soon. Keep an eye out for it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. Next week, we'll look at a different approach toward creating thriving black-owned brands. Equity sharing schemes have enabled workers to form trusts that can then own their own brand or own part of a brand in partnership with established white owners. There are challenges, but when successful, this model can change the lives of many workers and their families in a matter of a few years. I hope you'll join us. Thank you.